a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamnscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, the host of the Say the Damn Score podcast, recording live from the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. The Say the Damn Score podcast is dedicated to talking to different sportscasters from all around the country to find out how they make themselves into better sportscasters as well as to share some great stories from the industry. Right now, we are joined by Sean Aronson. He is the voice of the St. Paul Saints, an independent minor league baseball team in St. Paul, Minnesota. We should also plug his podcast, The Voice Behind the Voice. Sean, thanks for joining me. Hope all is well today. Logan, it's uh, it's a pleasure to join you. I'm I'm very excited about this. And uh, you know what? This is uh, a good time of the year in between Thanksgiving and and Christmas time as, as you and I talk. And uh, you know, people around here, maybe not starting to think about baseball just yet, but, uh, it's, uh, it's something where, you know, if you work in the world of baseball, like I do, you you start about January 1st after you get back from, from new year's is when you really start ramping up. So, uh, we're, we're getting, we're getting close. So what do you do for an independent minor league baseball team in January? Since obviously there's not a whole lot of baseball being played. (laughs) Uh, I tell people it is the least sexy side of the job. Uh, it is the soul sucking side of the job. Anybody that's ever worked in minor league sports or has had to sell before, that is pretty much what my job in the off season is. It's pretty much what all of our jobs are in the off season is corporate sales, group sales. Um, so, you know, you try to, you try to sell the the billboards and the on-field promotions and uh, you know the radio ads and program ads and you name it everything under the sun, under the sun, and then you, you get uh, you get companies out there that want to do group outings during the summer and you you try to get them to to commit and that's pretty much what we do from the time the season ends up until uh, we we start the next season, and um, you know for for me. My focus will shift a little bit sometime March or April towards the baseball side of things, 
but uh, but yeah, this is the lifeblood of what any minor league organization is. Now, the good thing for us is we moved into a brand new ballpark three years ago. That was an absolute boon for us, and we are the number one drawing team in terms of percent capacity in all of minor league baseball. So that's over 300 teams. Uh, there is not a team that that outdraws us in terms of percent capacity. So we've got the fans, which makes it a little easier on the business side to sell corporate sponsorship because you know they know that they're going to be in front of a, a, a number of fans, and, and that makes our job just a little easier. Yeah, I'm also in sales. I do just local radio sales for a station as opposed to selling for a team. But I know that learning sales wasn't necessarily easy right away when I started. How did you figure out uh, how to how to basically just do the basics of sales and how to find what the customer wants and all that fun jazz? Yeah, I don't know if I have 17 years into this business, to be very honest with you. Um it, look, I do fairly well at it, it, and I will not lie to you. And I think if you ask most broadcasters, they'll tell you the same thing. It, it's not their favorite thing to do. You know, I've talked to many broadcasters, you know, that that are doing, you know, Major League Baseball or the NFL or NHL or whatever it is, and a lot of them got started the same way you and I did, and a lot of them worked in in minor league sports, and a lot of them had to sell. And I think every one of them, to a man, has said. You know, it, it was not something that they enjoyed. It was not something that they looked forward to doing. But, you know, what you have to remember if you're just getting started in this business or, you know, you're, you know, still in the minor league level and hoping to get to, uh, you know, one of the four major sports that in order to get to the part that you love, that you enjoy, you have to learn to sell. And I remember when I first started in this business now 18 years ago. Uh, Dan Karcher, who is the play-by-play -play voice of the Colorado Springs Sky Sox, that's where I did my internship, and I, he's still there to this day. He said, look, if you learn to sell, it will make you more marketable than another broadcaster that's trying to get the same job you are. And if you can sell and prove to an organization that you can bring in money, there's a better chance of you getting a job even if you're an average broadcaster. Now, that obviously doesn't apply once you get to one of the four major sports because they don't care if you can sell or not. They care about your broadcasting style. But but I, that always stuck with me. And, you know, a lot of what I use on a broadcast, I use when I sit down with a potential client. You, you have to ask the right questions. You have to listen to what they say. You have to find what the right fit is for them uh, based upon their needs in your organization. And once you can, you know, figure out what that is – it makes your job a lot easier. Now, look, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to get a sell a sale every single time, but you know, anyone that's, that's ever sold before it, it they've heard it before. It's, you know, filling the funnel. You got to make the calls to get the meetings, to get in front of people, to put a, a potential partnership. And eventually you hope to get the sell the, the sale. And, you know, it's all about, the, the volume of phone calls that, that you're going to wind up making on the front end that will help you on the back end. That's enough about sales. This isn't the, yeah, uh, this you, isn't the sales uh, podcast. But I'm about to pass out from talking about <laughs> it so much to tell you the truth. So. For those of you who made it through the first five and a half minutes talking about sales, we really appreciate you here on the podcast. But it says that you got the broadcasting bug that you knew what you wanted to do when you were eight years old. How did that come about? How did you know? And what was your first broadcasting experience? Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California, just outside of the heart of Los Angeles. So I, look, I grew up, 
with listening to the pantheon uh, of what I consider the greatest broadcasters around. I mean, I had Vin Scully of the Dodgers, I had Chick Hearn of the Lakers, and I had Bob Miller of the LA Kings. And those were the guys that I grew up listening to. And look, I realized at an early age, maybe not eight years old, but I realized it like, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, that, that my athletic prowess and, and podcast listeners can't see me putting uh, quotation marks around the phrase athletic prowess because I didn't really have any, but I realized I wasn't going to go anywhere. So I figured, well, what's the next best thing if I can't play a sport past you know high school? And I figured, well, the next best thing is to, to broadcast it. Um, and that's what I, you know, realized at eight, nine years old, that's what I want to do. Cause I grew up listening to, to the greatest broadcasters in my mind, uh, that have ever lived. And, you know, I did what a lot of kids did, you know, that wanted to get into broadcasting and a lot of people that I talked to, and I'm sure a lot of the broadcasters you talk to is when they were young and they played video games or they played, you know, street ball with their friends or whatever it was. They would play, but they'd also broadcast. So I did that, you know, playing Nintendo, playing RBI baseball. My friends would be like, hey, why don't you broadcast the game? So that's sort of how you got your informal start. My formal start came when I was in college and my girlfriend at the time, her brother was playing high school baseball and I would take a tape recorder and I would go into the shed behind home plate and it would be me and the guy running the scoreboard and I would just broadcast into a tape recorder. And that was really how I got my start. Uh, I didn't utilize the University of Colorado to my to my benefit. I didn't, you know, I didn't broadcast there. Um, I did a, a sports show, but I didn't do uh, any play by play. So my first taste of broadcasting was uh, high school baseball. So who were you able to get that tape that you took uh, from that shed behind the stadium? <laughs> who, who were you able to get that tape into their hands who was able to give you your first job? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you say that. I'm not even sure that, that that tape ever got me a job, to be honest with you. My, my first uh, my first official you know job in this business was an internship in Colorado Springs, as I mentioned. And I remember that I was calling around to a bunch of teams. You know, I graduated from college and I thought, well, now someone's just going to hand me a job, right? That's the way it works. I have this nice diploma. I got a degree in broadcasting. Now I'm just, I should just be handed a job. And, you know, you learn real fast that that's not the way it goes. But I was calling around to a bunch of minor league teams trying to see, hey, do you have an opening or is there an internship? And I called a, a, a short season team in New York and I can't even remember what team it was. And the general manager picked up the phone and he asked me a question that I thought was really weird. He said, why do you want to move all the way out here just for an internship? And I thought to myself, what a ridiculous question that is. I, I know I've wanted to do this my whole life. I'd move anywhere to, to get my foot in the door in this business. And so the second I ended that phone call, I said, all right, well, what teams are here in Colorado? And there's one AAA team and that's it. There's no other minor league teams there. And it was Colorado Springs and I picked up the phone and I called him and I talked to uh, the director of media relations, uh, Mike Hirsch. And I said, look, I'm looking to get my foot in the door. I just graduated from the University of Colorado. And he said, look, here's what we have. We have a media relations assistant. It's not broadcasting. It's media relations assistant. And he interviewed me over the phone and he offered me the position right away. I mean, it, it really happened that fast. And... I'd never had to send him a tape or anything. 
the winter meetings that year were in Anaheim, California. So I figured, you know, what? I'm going to go to the winter meetings and see what happens. Just, you know, they're in my backyard. I might may as well go, even though I have this internship, maybe I can land a job. And if anyone's ever been to the baseball winter meetings and gone to the job fair, it is like a cattle call. It is a herd of cattle going into a room, everybody trying to get a job. And I tell you, 90% of them are trying to get broadcasting jobs for like two actual jobs that, that are posted. And I think I was there for three or four hours and I said, this is ridiculous. And I, I left because I already had this internship. And so I'm not sure anyone has ever heard that tape of me in a shed at high school games in Colorado. I, I'm not even sure I have that tape anymore, period. I was gonna. That was gonna be my next question: Is do you still have it? But <laughs> no. But but the funny thing is, I, you know, when I was in Colorado Springs, they knew what I wanted to do, and I worked my butt off as an intern there. Um, you know, we talked about sales earlier. That 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 got me noticed in Colorado Springs. We I was there from January to April before the season started, as were all the other interns, and we had to sell, um, and that's all we did. And I just put my nose down and, and did everything I could. And I, I impressed them so much that when the season came around towards the end, the general manager came to me and said, hey, we know what you want to do. We're going to offer you a game on air. And here, here was a, a kid that had no play-by-play experience except for into a tape recorder uh, you know, for high school games that no one had ever listened to. And they were willing to put me on the air on a AAA game. And I remember – the night that it was going to happen, Dan Karcher stayed at home, and it was me and and the number two guy, uh, his his broadcast partner that had been his broadcast partner for years, and it rained, and so we filled some time at the beginning and you know the pregame show, and the game got rained out, and I was devastated. And the next day, uh, you know, Karch came back and he said, "Hey, you know, I know you got rained out, but we promised you three innings, so we'll give you one inning in game one and two innings in game two. And they were the best three innings I, I, I've ever done. Not, not in terms of how good I was, but in terms of the feeling that you have, because you can't ever replicate the first time you get the opportunity to get behind a mic. And here I was at a, you know, triple a game with, with literally no experience. And the high that you get from doing that was incredible. It's something that, that I could never, ever replicate because it was the first time. Um, and I always am grateful f- uh, to Dan Karcher and the Colorado Springs Sky Sox for that moment. That's interesting, just because I know I kind of fell backwards into broadcasting like a lot of people do, and I my very first game was an NAI team playing a Division II team, and the NAI team won at the buzzer, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is cool. Are they all like this? And yeah, right. That's kind of where I kind of fell in love with the business, and then found out that there's more 40-point blowouts than, than uh, buzzer shots, but... You know, one of the things, give us the Cliff Notes version of how you ended up in St. Paul from that point. Yeah, so I, I got my first job in Allentown, Pennsylvania with a team that's no longer in existence. I was there for two years. Uh, got my next job in Fort Myers, Florida, the single A affiliate of the uh, Minnesota Twins. I was there for four years. I was there 03 to 06. My predecessor in St. Paul, Chris Atterbury, got the job with the Twins doing their pre- and post-game show. The ownership group of the Saints owned the Fort Myers Miracle at the time. They have since sold them. And so when Atterbury took the job with the Twins, they were looking for someone to replace him. And they opened up the search only to the teams they owned. So it was myself. It was uh, the broadcaster in Charleston with the River Dogs and the broadcaster in Sioux Falls um, with the Canaries. 
and we were all interviewed and spoiler alert here i am uh going on my 12th season in saint paul uh having gotten the job and everyone always asked me when i tell them that i came from fort myers to here they always ask why'd you move from florida to minnesota and i said well it's a much larger media market with a lot better opportunities in in saint paul and that's why but i regret the decision every winter uh when i have to go through the seven and a half months of winter that they have around here um i regret the decision but i, I wouldn't change it for the world the question I would have had was not the same, not why would you leave for the city of Minneapolis, which is an incredible uh, you know, market. It's a great place to live and be. But leaving affiliated ball for independent ball on the what most people do is kind of backwards. What, yep. Take us through that decision and why that worked for you. Yeah, so you have to remember, again, it's the 15th largest media market. It's a, it's a team that at the time – is, was in the same market as the four major sports. Well, now we've got basically the six major sports. Now you've got the women's basketball team and you have an MLS team. So, I mean, everyone wants to to cry around here about how it's a small market in the Twin Cities. And I, I it bothers me every time I hear that. I, I can't believe anyone complains that they live in a small market. The Twin Cities are not that. But, um, but you had that. The Saints were on television. So, uh, their games were were televised on the local cable access plus the local independent channel plus uh, Fox Sports North. Um, so they they split the three games or the three channels. Uh, the the fifty home games were were on the three separate channels. At, you know various times. I think Fox Sports did about six games. So I mean to to have an opportunity to broadcast on on a major network like that was you know something that. That appealed to me, and I also looked at the lineage. Um, you know, if if you're getting into this business or you're in this business and you're going for the job, look at the lineage. Look at the people that were there before you. What have they gone on to do? And Chris Atterbury, as I mentioned, was doing you know the Twins because he got that job. Um, Ryan Lafever, uh, who does the Kansas City Royals, was here. Anthony Lapanta, who at the time was doing pre and post on Fox Sports North for every single one of the the four major sports he is now the the voice of the minnesota wild on television uh joe block had a year here he's now with the pittsburgh pirates um i feel like i'm missing someone but but basically what it comes down to is uh you know all the lineage was there i mean this was a breeding ground much like the Pawtucket red Sox are the breeding ground for guys to go onto the major leagues in, in affiliated ball the saint paul saints were that for independent baseball um, I always joke that I don't want the buck to stop with me. I don't want to be the guy that that ends that train. But um, but but the lineage was there. You can't argue with the lineage. So it was an easy decision for me to to come here. I, I shouldn't say easy because um, I'm not someone that likes change or likes to move. But uh, I my vice president in uh, in Fort Myers at the time, Linda McNabb, who who's a mentor of mine, she looked at me and she said, "If you don't take this job." I'm going to wonder if you really want to be a broadcaster. And that sort of gave me the the kick in the rear end that I needed to to get up and move. And and like I said, it's it's been great. I I don't regret it for one second. Usually people uh, with that lineage as you said don't end up staying at this job for as long as you have. <laughs> now everyone's journey is obviously different. It depends on timing and opportunity, but you know, you've been with the St. Paul Saints for a really long time, 17 years. Have you had opportunities to leave or are you waiting for a specific one? Yeah, and specifically with the Saints for 11 years, minor league baseball for 17. Um, but I, I believe that was a generous way of saying I'm a failure, which is OK. I, I no, can, no, no, I no, 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 no
I interviewed and was was a finalist for two separate double-A jobs uh, that didn't wind up going uh, to me, clearly, uh, spoiler alert. But, um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've had other opportunities that made sense for me. Um, I've been offered other jobs because of this outside of the broadcast world, but I didn't want to take those. I was offered, uh, I think it was my second or third year in St. Paul. Uh, and this is, this is no joke. The woman who was the assistant, assistant grounds crew, uh, at, at our old stadium, her husband was like the marketing director for Northern tool and equipment. And as part of their deal with us, one of their race car drivers, cause they sponsored race cars, uh, was on the broadcast with me for like an inning and you know, you interview the guy, whatever. Well, her husband was so impressed with me that the next day she pulled me out of the office and said, my husband was so impressed with what you did. They want you to run their media relations for Northern tool and equipment. And they're willing to give you $75,000. Uh, not a lie, no joke. And I was floored. I was shocked. And that was about three and a half times more than what I was making at the time. And maybe a little bit less than that. And I turned it down. I turned down $75,000 uh, because it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't play-by-play. -play. Um, and I've been offered some other jobs. I've been offered a, 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 athletic, a sports information director job in the area before that I turned down. Um, but again, this is my passion and this is what I want to do. So, um, you know, I, I'm happy I'm happy where I'm at. Uh, I'm I, Look, my goal is to be Major League Baseball, and I'll keep plugging away at that. But at this point in my career, where I've been doing this for 17 years, a lateral move doesn't make any sense. I'm not just going to take a double-A job to take a double-A job. It doesn't make any sense. It's got to be a step up for me. So a job with, you know, like I mentioned, Pawtucket makes a lot of sense because of the lineage there. Um, you know, and there are other teams out there, not a ton, but other teams out there that have solid lineages. Those are the jobs that make sense to me. Um, because again, I'm in a major media market. Why would I go to a smaller market just because it's a double A team? That makes no sense. The St. Paul Saints, I, I guess I've known of their reputation for many years and they're known for having a lot of zany promotions and Bill Murray is the co-owner I believe he has some connection to it. I'll let you explain yep. that here as we get a little bit farther down. But what are some of your favorite promotions and unique, unique things that you guys have done as part of the St. Paul Saints? Yeah, it's it's a long list, but uh, I'll give you a couple quickly off the top here. We did one last year, just this past season. Uh, the game of Twister was invented here in Minnesota by by someone who, who lived in Minnesota. They brought it to 3M. 3M is a Fortune 500 company that, that is based out of Minnesota. And so we decided we wanted to do a Twister night last year. Following the ball game on a Monday night, um, there were about 20 of us that stayed afterwards. We painted 56,000, let me repeat that, 56,000 Twister dots on the outfield. It took about from 9.15 at night. The game was two hours and three minutes that night, by the way. Um, we started about 9.15 and we ended at about 6.30 the next morning, painting all throughout the night. Uh, we played the game that Tuesday night on the Twister board. And then after the game on Tuesday night, incidentally, that game was three hours and 20 minutes. Um, everyone that was left in attendance came down onto the field and we played the largest game of Twister. So that was pretty unique and different and uh, really out of the ordinary. 
Um, you know, some of the best promotions that we've done kind of poke fun at, at uh, pop culture or people that that have had things go wrong with them, if you will. Um, my first year here, I think it was, it was in 2007, we had a senator uh, from Idaho come to the state of Minnesota in the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport. Uh, he went into the bathroom, uh, went into a bathroom stall, tapped his foot up and down three times, slid his foot to the person's foot next to him in the stall, rubbed his foot up against that person, uh, and basically in the in the gay community, it's a calling card. Well, the problem was the person next to him in the stall was an undercover cop. Uh, because I, apparently solicitation at the Minneapolis St. Paul airport bathrooms had become very rampant. And so the, the police officers were staking it out. Well, we decided to do a promotion based off of this, uh, which turned out to be the biggest promotion I've ever been a part of. We did a bobble foot. So we did a bathroom stall with a foot that peeked out of the bottom God. and that, uh, that, you know, tapped up and down. I did interviews for a month straight from coast to coast, Los Angeles to New York, uh, the Saints were on uh, MSNBC. We were on. Uh, we were in USA Today. We were. People have told me we were in Sports Illustrated. We were on ESPN. People told me that we were a, a punchline to uh, Jay Leno, the t the Tonight Show at the time. You can see how far back that was. That that we were used as a punchline in, in his monologue. So it was the biggest promotion I've ever been a part of. Tell me about the triple exhibition. <laughs> So this actually was, you know, we take we take ideas from anyone, and this actually was an idea from from an intern of mine, but not that year. My intern, like two years before, had presented this idea, and we just didn't do it. We didn't pull the trigger on it, and it took us two or three years before we actually did it. The name is better than the actual promotion, uh, but Triple Exhibition was, uh, I think we, what we officially called it was uh, the three way at midway, the triple exhibition. And, uh, it was basically three teams playing against each other. It was an exhibition game. So it was us, uh, another team from our league and then a town ball team. Um, and so we, uh, w like we would play three innings against the, the team in our league. And then we would play three innings against the town ball team. And then the town ball team would play three innings against the, you know, the, the other team in our league. So it was just this three-way game that, that went 12 innings and everyone played nine innings. And um, the name was better than the actual promotion, but the, the name got us a, a little bit of publicity. You talked a lot about your internship process earlier in the podcast and, you know, just through happenstance when we're recording this it was just a couple of days ago that i know i saw on the staa job email that you're looking for an intern yep. what do you look for in an intern knowing your experience and how important i guess how serious you do you take that position knowing what it did for you uh i take it extremely seriously as a matter of fact my goal is to become a mentor to whoever is my my intern or my assistant, however you want to look at it. My goal is to get them a job because they reflect upon who I am as as a teacher, right? If if they leave here and can't get a job, that reflects poorly on me. If they leave here and can get a job, that means I've at least helped somewhat in the process. I don't take full credit for that, but you know, you you figure you've helped somewhat in that process. I want someone that A is going to come in here and be very hyper-focused on what it takes to get through an entire baseball season, right? Because the hours are long, 
the the summer is long. You don't have a, a social life. Um, you're you're in the office on game days from nine in the morning until roughly an hour after the game is over at night. So it's like nine in the morning till you know eleven at night on average. Um, when when the other interns get to go home on road games, you, my intern is in the studio board hopping and hosting a pre and post game show. So I'm looking for someone that finds what their limits are and then goes beyond their limits. I push my interns past their breaking point because when you go out and get your own job, right, there is no safety net anymore. Okay. I'm the safety net right now, but my goal is to find out what your breaking point is, break you and get you past your breaking point. Cause I want to prove to, to you that, you can go further than you think you can. That those 14-hour days, day after day after day after day, that you can push yourself past that and you can still do an excellent job. Broadcasting, writing, doing the media relations, putting a program together, uh, doing the game notes, stat packs, uh, updating the website, social media, right? You, you've got 10 or 15 jobs that you're doing. Well, if you're running on little to no sleep, how do you do that? How do you mentally stay focused? And so that's what I try to do. I try to go through with my interns that the mental side, the physical side, the emotional side are just as important as any skills that you feel you have as a broadcaster. And I also tell them that broadcasting, about 10th to 15th on the list of things that you're asked to do when you get a job in minor league sports, right? A, a general manager want someone that's well-rounded. They don't want someone that's just a broadcaster. Eight billion people want to be broadcasters. So what sets you apart? You better be well-rounded. You better know how to sell. You better know how to write. You better know how to you, to juggle all the, the jobs that you're asked to do. And the only way to do that is to be able to break through the barrier of the exhaustion, the fatigue, uh, the mental fatigue. And, and, and I'm here to, to show people how to do that. How many times have you slept at the ballpark and do you have a specific place at the ballpark where you <laughs> sleep when you need to, or do you just mix it up depending on where you are at the time? Yeah, it's funny that you, you asked that. I've never actually slept at the ballpark during like the season in terms of games or, you know, like a game went till one o'clock and we got to be back at whatever. Uh, I've never done that, but I got into the, the ritual when we moved into this new ballpark that the night before opening day, I slept at the ballpark. Because when the ballpark opened in 2015, every news station went live here. Well, you know, morning morning newscasts are, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning. So that means that they've got to be here at four o'clock in the morning to, to set up and do all that stuff. So I thought, well, that's stupid. Why would I drive home to get like three hours of sleep to turn around and come back to the ballpark? So I slept here the first year and I slept on the trainer's table. Because we didn't have all the furniture and stuff in this ballpark at that time. You know, there weren't any couches or anything like that. And in the areas where there were couches, uh, the lights were those sensor lights. So when you walked into the room, the lights just went on. And so I, I couldn't sleep in those rooms because it would notice when I moved. So I slept on the trainer's table uh, that first year. Uh, I have subsequently slept at the ballpark the night before opening day the last two years. Uh, but we have a couch in a room that, that is dark and, and I can get some sleep in. So, um, yeah, so I, those are the three times that I've, I've slept at the ballpark. Um, look, I'm crazy. I don't care what time the game gets over. It could be 
a game that ends at midnight, we've got a curfew where games can't go past midnight unless it's the the last game that you play a team in a season. Um, but a game could go to midnight. I could get out of here at one o'clock in the morning. I will get up Monday through Friday, 630 in the morning to go to the gym. I do it every single day during the season, five days a week, Saturday and Sunday I take off, but I'm in the gym, uh, up at 630 in the gym at about seven, seven fifteen. You know, I read that, and it also that you keep your own George Foreman grill and rice cooker <laughs> in the booth in order to make sure you eat healthy. And I know I've written about this on my blog. My weight fluctuates hugely depending whether I'm in season or out of season. It's hard to eat good when you're doing that and being on the road constantly. How do you manage to pull that off? Yeah, so at home, just as you mentioned, it's uh, it's it's chicken, it's uh, you know lean meats on the Foreman grill, brown rice in the rice cooker, um, and I'll bring a vegetable with me. So I've got the 50 home games uh, you know, covered. On the road, I'll bring all the, you know, like almonds and, and nuts and things like that. Uh, but my main meal, uh, look, I should own stock in Subway with as much as I eat at Subway and Subway salads and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's really what I do. I don't, I don't eat anybody else's ballpark food. Uh, a number of the ballparks we go to have, you know, catered food from, you know, outside restaurants or fast food places or whatever, and I won't eat it. I, I just won't do it. And so that's the best way that that I can. And I also know, look, during the season, going to the gym in the morning is the only time that I have to myself. It's the time where I can clear my mind, get ready for the day. I don't care how tired I am. I, I'm not saying that every workout's a great workout because it's not. Trust me. But but you need that time to yourself. And so going into the gym in the morning is my time. I don't allow anyone to bother me. I don't answer any emails. I don't do anything. That's my time. And it gets me mentally prepared for the day. I, I find if you're physically in shape, it makes the season a lot easier because you're, you're grinding. Now, the, the argument on the other side is, well, sleep is also very helpful. And I don't disagree with that. Um, but my trick is I use the road to catch up on sleep. Now, on the road... I still get up at 6.30 in the morning, go work out, but I will always take about an hour afternoon nap around 1 or 2 o'clock before the uh, bus leaves for the ballpark. I always take a little cat nap just to let my body shut down, and uh, and that's what I do. Uh, it's, it's something that I've done ever since I got into this business, and it's something that helps me survive the season. What do you do in the off season between probably when when does the independent league get done? August or September? September, yeah. We we end on Labor Day, um, and if everything breaks our way, you know, we play for an additional two weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, so at the latest mid mid September. So what do you do in September through January before you start selling the stuff we talked about earlier? Yeah, so we sell right away, but uh, you know, usually September through October uh, is vacation time or, you know, unwind time or whatever. Um, and I'll always make sure to either go home to California. Uh, this, this past off season, I, I took my first trip overseas. I went to London and I went to Rome, uh, for two weeks. So I, I always get out. Uh, look, I, everybody works hard during the season. Everyone does. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't shortchange what anybody in this office does, but, I work more hours than anybody else. So I need to, I just need to get out and decompress. Um, and, and other people need to do that as well. And everyone does it in their own way, but I need to get away from, from the ballpark. 
you know, I don't want to hang around Minnesota and, and use that as my vacation or whatever. I, I have to get away. So I'll go home more times than not to California. My, my family, all my friends are still there. So I'll usually go home. But uh, I had never been overseas before. It was something I really wanted to do. Uh, you know, I turned 40 this past year and I said, you know what, I'm tired of waiting on people to sync their schedule up with mine. You know, I can't go on vacations with people during the summer. So, um, you know, I, I decided I'm going, if anyone wants to go with me, they're more than welcome. Otherwise I'm, I'm flying solo. And that's exactly what I did. And it was, it was amazing. I loved it. I, I loved London. I fell in love with Rome. It makes me want to travel more. And I, I think if you're in this business, just getting away is something you have to do because the the season is so mentally taxing. And then once we get back and everyone's kind of taking their vacations, uh, we'll we'll all sit down and, and discuss, you know, getting ready for the next season. What was your favorite part about London? I've been fortunate enough to be in London as well, had a fantastic time. I'll actually be going to Rome uh, in the summer in June. But what was your favorite part about uh, being in London? Uh I will say, you know, I've, I've been to New York before and I've ridden the subway there, but riding the tube and just watching <laughs> how other, watching how other people, uh, act, you know, while they're on the tube was, was pretty fascinating. I'm a big people person. I just kind of like to watch how people, uh, you know, how, how they act in certain situations. I, I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was pretty cool. But, uh, the touristy thing that I did that I loved was Buckingham palace, which I did not realize was only open for about a six to eight week period every year. That's it. It's not open year round. You can't go see it whenever. Uh, the queen leaves the castle uh, and she goes on her vacation and they do that and she does it every year so that uh, you know tourists or whoever wants to go can, can go to, to the palace and they use the money from all the tours to help upkeep the, um, the palace. That's what they do. And I didn't realize this. But I was very fortunate that the last week that the palace was open to tourists was the first week that I was in London. And so it just so happened to work out. And it, it was great. I found it fascinating. Um, I also uh, went and saw the Crown Jewels, which is in, a, in another area. Um, and and I, I just found that stuff fascinating. And, I, you know, I'm not someone that I didn't watch Downton Abbey or anything like that. So, you know, I didn't have any of that. Uh, I did watch, uh, what is it, The Crown on Netflix. So I guess that was my... The only thing I really knew about, uh, you know, the the queen and and the history of that from from watching a Netflix show, but but it was fascinating. I, I'm I'm a big fan of of learning about other cultures and history, and and to walk around and and just see everything there was was fascinating. You'll find this interesting. I I kept my Mind the Gap T-shirt for years. <laughs> I probably still have it. I don't think it's wearable anymore, but I had yeah. that T-shirt. I love that saying. Yeah, I, I do appreciate how how Londoners or, or the English, if you will, can poke fun at themselves. You'll see a lot of that around the area where they know that the rest of the world is probably poking fun at them for certain things, but they they're in on the joke too. I, I found that pretty funny. So tell us the connection of Bill Murray to the St. Paul Saints, and give us some Bill Murray stories. Um, yeah, so he is he is part owner, uh, co owner of the of the St. Paul Saints. Um, he has a connection to, uh, to our owners, Marv Goldkling and uh, Mike Vec. And so he's, he's been in on the ground floor since day one, back in 1993. Um, I will tell you, uh, a, a couple of things about, about Bill. 
uh, and I call him Bill, like we're best friends. We, we by no means are we best friends, but, um, but he's an, he's an extremely nice guy. He, he signs every autograph. He takes every picture. Um, he takes batting practice with the teams, uh, with our team. He'll, he'll go in the dugout, um, you know, during the game. Uh, he was here for the all-star game back in 2008, uh, went out to the, to the mound to have a, uh, a conference on the mound during the all-star game, which was pretty cool. That is the only time I've ever had him on the broadcast was back in 2008 during the all-star game. And this is exactly how the beginning of the conversation went. I, you know, thankful that, that he's there. I appreciate you coming on. I said, so Bill, tell me how you got started with the St. Paul Saints. Now I know the story, but the people out there may not know the story. And so I'm trying to lead him in the direction of telling the story. And his response to me was something that I have not forgotten, nor have the production crew, who many of them that were on the production crew back in 08 are still on the production crew today. He looks at me and he says, well, you've clearly done your homework. And here was Bill Murray absolutely shattering me on a broadcast. And I did not, I, I, to, to this day, I don't know what I said after that. I've got the the DVD of it, but I have no idea what I said after that. And I was like, oh, this can't be good. Now that's Bill being Bill. Bill is not stand-up comedian funny. That's not who he is. Um, but he's he's very sarcastic funny. He's very animated funny. Um, he, you know, he's he's humorous in the way he looks at you or in the way he gestures. Um, that's where a lot of his humor comes in. If you watch his movies, they're not slapstick comedy funny. That's not who he is. And so um, I, I got a taste of what Bill Murray is like being sarcastic. But at the time, I didn't know that. It was my first interaction with Bill. And the first words out of his mouth to me were, well, you've clearly done your homework. And I was devastated. But I had to rebound quickly, and, and we went on from there. How often is he at? Saints games and how often does he kind of make himself available? Yeah, so he's he'll come usually for uh, a series a year, sometimes two. If we're in the playoffs, he's here for the playoffs. Like he he loves this team, um, and he I, how do I put this? He doesn't make himself available to to the media. Okay, he's not that guy. Like he he is not a limelight guy. Like if you want to do an interview with him, he won't do it. If you're casual about it and you're you're respectful of him, then he's more apt to do an interview with you. Now, he's not going to give you a half-hour sit-down, but if you're down on the field when he's here and you go up to him very respectfully and say, you know, Mr. Murray, can I, can I get, you know, 30 seconds of your time just to ask you a question? He's more apt to do it than if you stick a microphone in his face. Um, but as far as like us, the St. Paul saints, when he's here, um, you know, we don't ask him to do too much. Again, we, we respect his privacy and the type of person he is, but if there's something major that's going on that we want him to be a part of more times than not, he'll, he'll do it. Um, you know, the one thing we really wanted him at this year, he couldn't be at it. We, we honored Kevin Millar. Um, you know, he got his start, uh, with the St. Paul saints back in 1993. And, there's this famous photo of Millar and Bill Murray sitting on a couch that we recreated this year into a bobblehead. 
And the reason we did that is the 20, it was the 25th anniversary of the St. Paul Saints. So we were doing all these commemorative bobbleheads of former players. Well, we wanted Bill to be here because we were, you know, sort of honoring the 25 year history and that 1993 team and, and Millar and all this. But Bill couldn't be here because his his sister is a nun and uh, she had something going on, was being honored by, uh, I don't know specifically what it was called. I think they called it a jubilee or something along those lines. And uh, so he was with with his his sister. Um, and so he couldn't be here for that, which was totally understandable. And then, well, wouldn't you know, Kevin Millar, who wanted to to play in a game, we got permission from the the league that he could take an official at bat in an official game everything was on the up and up he got one at bat and wouldn't you know he homered in it and how cool was that and i think it would have been even cooler had had uh, had bill been here but even without him here the moment was something i'll never forget kevin millar having not taken it at bat in, in what was it seven years the second pitch he saw he drilled over the left field wall for a home run has there been a bobblehead of your likeness made in, <laughs> no, in 11 years? Never is. No, never. Uh, no. Uh, I am trying to get a statue uh, built of me uh, and the press box named after me, uh, but they keep telling me that I have to die to have that happen, and I tell them that I die a little bit inside each day, um, but that still hasn't gotten me anything. But no, uh, no, nor, nor will there ever. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that big of a deal uh, to, to have a bobblehead. Uh, created of my likeness unless you're you're vin scully uh i don't think they do bobbleheads uh, of people like me <laughs> you were named the 2016 ballpark digest broadcaster of the year what did that mean for you how important was that um you know it's it's funny i wouldn't say it was important to the point that you get into this business because you want to win awards i don't think that's why anybody gets into this business I think it was important because all of us want to be recognized in some form or fashion. Like you want validation that the job you're doing is a good one, right? A lot of broadcasters are failed athletes in some way, a failed high school athlete, a failed college athlete, failed professional athlete, you know, whatever it is. And so we never get that adulation. You don't know what it's like to hit that you know, game winning home run or hit that buzzer beater or whatever. So you never get that sort of adulation and recognition. And when I was, when I was awarded that, you, you look back at your career and you realize there are a number of people that helped you get to where you are that have made you into the broadcaster that, that I've become. And I was I was sort of sheepish when I got the award. I I, I was I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but it was it, it was one of the broadcasters that I was sitting down with, and uh, I I said to him, you know, we all have egos. Every broadcaster has an ego, B big or small. You know that that that's up to the broadcaster, but we'll joke by by using our ego. You know, we'll tell people how great we are because. Nobody tells us how great we are, right? You, you'll go around joking. Well, I'm, I'm great. I'm this broadcaster. I'm a big deal, blah, blah, blah. But you're doing that to mask all the insecurities you have. Yet when you actually get honored with an award like that, there is no ego when you get it. You, you really are humbled. Uh, you, you really do become sheepish uh, when you get this award. And 
at the core, that's really who we are as broadcasters. We're these uh, humble people that really don't think we're, we're, we're that good. And so when you, when you get honored, it, it really does make you feel humbled and appreciative that someone recognizes how hard you've worked to get to the point where you're at. So was unofficially naming the press box, the Sean Aronson press box, one of those um, jokingly humble brags that you were talking 100%. about? Yeah, 100%. No doubt. Yeah, when, when we built this ballpark and they asked me, well, what do you want? Like, how would you, if you could design your own press box, what would you make it look like? Which I thought was very nice, you know, that, that they would ask for my opinion. And I gave them a list of things that I would look for in a press box. And then I said, I'd like a statue out front. Um, but yeah, that's one of those things that as broadcasters, I think inherently we're, we're all very insecure. And so to mask that insecurity, we all have these egos that are larger than they should be. And when you have these egos, you'll joke with friends or coworkers or things like that about those egotistical things. Now, deep down inside, trust me, I don't believe I'm that good or deserve any sort of recognition of a press box named after me, a statue or any of those things, but you do it because just a bobblehead. You know, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Just a bobblehead. Um, but, but, but you do it because it masks those insecurities. So when someone does tell you, Hey, you're good and, and I'll have fans come up to me and say, Hey, we really like listening to you. We think you're good, blah, blah, blah. I don't say, yeah, I know I'm very like, I, it catches me off guard when that happens. Um, but, but again, it's very appreciative when people do it. Being on the road for 50 plus games, potentially a year, I'm sure you have some wonderful travel horror stories with uh, buses breaking down in inconvenient places or just awful, awful hotels. Give us a couple of the best ones that you've come across. Uh, you know what? In all my time, I think we've, that I can remember, I feel like the bus has only broken down one time. I honestly believe that. Um, and I, I remember I used that time just to sort of chat with the players. Uh, and I learned that one of our players, uh, I think his family were, uh, were in taxidermy. So they stuffed dead animals. Um, so it was a, it was kind of a, an interesting, uh, breaking down of the bus just to learn that. But, you know, you, you've had time more times than not where the air conditioner on the bus goes out and you're driving through wherever. And that would happen in Florida all the time when I was in the Florida State League. And that was god awful. I mean, you'd have to open the the hatch on the top just to get some airflow going. But the air conditioning breaking on the buses happens more times than I, I care to remember. And that makes it unbearable on the bus where guys are stripping down to to almost nothing just to, just to be cool. Um, as far as hotels, we're pretty fortunate in this league in the Florida state league. I, I stayed in some of those like motel eights, things like that. There was a, a hotel in this league down in Texas. Uh, the team is no longer around, nor should it be. Uh, but the hotel that we stayed at, uh, had bed bugs and a number of our, our players wound up getting bitten by bed bugs, uh, from the hotel. Uh, that was an absolute disaster. So, uh, that, that's probably one of the worst hotels I stayed at. We stayed in a hotel down in El Paso, Texas, that uh, was right on the other side uh, of the border. Um, and I think it's El Paso. Maybe it's Laredo. I forget. One of the two. And on the other side is Juarez, Mexico. And at the time we went there, there was a lot of stories, a lot more stories than now that, that you would hear 
of the drug cartel and people getting shot and dying. And here we were literally staying on the other side of the border. Like you could see the border from our hotel and parents were freaking out about us going down there and staying at this hotel right across the other side of the border from Juarez, Mexico. Um, and, and that was, that was really interesting because you would walk outside to, you know, go get food or, or go wherever. And you're like, all right, I'm walking outside. Is something bad going to happen to me? I know I'm in the United States, but you just never know. So this is something that I asked every Twin Cities person that I've had on, okay. which isn't that many, to be fair. Sure. Matt's Bar or the 5-8 Club? <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask for that, seriously, um, because I'm a fairly healthy eater. I, I guess where you're going with that is is who's got the juicy Lucy that uh, you know that that you turn to, and, and to be and this will tell you how little of a Minnesotan I am. Eleven years here. I believe I have had a Juicy Lucy two times. One was from the Nook. And I've been there I as be- well. I believe the other one, I'm pretty sure it was Matt's Bar was the other one. But two times, that's it. Two times in 11 years. I am, I am the antithesis of a Minnesotan. Like people ask me all the time, so where are you from? I say, I live in Minnesota but I'm from Southern California. I never claim Minnesota to be my own. And that's not a knock on Minnesota, but I am, I am not, I I am not, that that's not my personality. I am not a Minnesotan. You know, you hear about the Minnesota nice and all this other stuff. And whoever came up with that phrase, by the way, should be given all the money that Minnesota can turn to someone. Cause I argue that you could say that about any state out there. You could say, Alabama nice, you could say California nice, you could say Nevada nice, you could say anywhere nice, right? Like you're going to meet a bunch of nice people wherever you go. You're also going to meet a lot of schmucks wherever you go. And I've met plenty of those here in Minnesota as well. So whoever came up with Minnesota nice as, you know, to quantify the people around here should be a billionaire because the state of Minnesota should just keep funneling money their way. I think you find nice people wherever you're at. You find you find jerks wherever you're at, too. So what's the biggest culture difference for you moving from besides the weather and yeah. your disaffinity for Juicy Lucy's? What is the <laughs> other culture, cultural aspect that you don't necessarily fit in with in Minnesota? Um, I think it's just a, a slower pace out here. You know, it, it's a very Midwest vibe. And a lot of people that I talk to, you know, friends of mine, they, you know, they grew up and I don't want to make this sound like, you know, everyone in Minnesota grows up on a farm, but you know, I've got plenty of friends that from here that, that grew up on farms and they didn't, they didn't have cable growing up. Like they didn't have TV growing up. And like, to me, that's a foreign concept. Not only did I have cable growing up, my parents had a black box. And for people out there that don't know what a black box is, it was this illegal converter that gave you every single pay channel for free. So like I grew up and I fully admit this and my parents admit this. My sister admits this. My sister and I grew up very spoiled. We were spoiled kids. Like we, we didn't lack for anything. And look, my parents, we were, we were, you know, fairly well off when I was a kid. Not so much now, but we didn't lack for anything. So you come to the Midwest, it's very slow paced and uh, people are very hardworking here. And a lot of people stay close to home. They don't, you know, their idea of a vacation is going to Wisconsin um, or going up to the cabin. Like to me, that's, that's a foreign concept, you know, going to the cabin. Uh, I don't understand the allure of going to a cabin. 
You don't need to go to the cabin to do everything that you can do in the Twin Cities. You want to fish? They've got 11,000 plus lakes around here. You can go to any lake you want to. Uh, you can relax anywhere that you want. But, you know, people feel the need to to get a cabin. My joke is that when you're born in Minnesota, you get a birth certificate and a deed to a cabin. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happens because everybody's got a cabin around here. Uh, so the, the slower pace is something that you, you kind of have to get used to around here. Um, you know, not that it's a fast pace in Los Angeles, but there's so many people there that, you know, you, you, you have to. You, you have to constantly be on the move. Now it's not East Coast fast. I mean that's that's a different you know set of uh, skills to be a uh, East Coast fast. But uh, the slow pace in the Midwest is something you have to get used to. So there was one day. It was probably how long have you been doing your podcast? Uh, just about a year. It'll be two years in March, I think. So what is it? Year and nine months. Year and eight months. So I think I had about two or three months where I was pretty much the only person doing a podcast with sportscasters, and then you came out with yours, which is obviously very good, and we're going to talk about it here, but you made me really sad for about a day until I realized <laughs> that's a really stupid thing to think. But <laughs> um, what has been the most rewarding part about you know having a podcast? Because I personally know it's a lot of work. It's uh, a time commitment, and generally it's a time commitment around somebody else's schedule. What has been the most rewarding part of having it? Uh, well, first the compliments that I've gotten from the guests, um, the greatest compliment that you can ever get from another broadcaster is, wow, you've done a lot of prep work for this, right? Because broadcasters, they prep for, for their broadcast, right? Like when you, when you do, you know, the football game that you're going to do this weekend, it takes a lot of prep to do that, right? You don't just go on the air and all of a sudden you're, you're broadcasting a game takes a lot of prep. So broadcasters can tell when other broadcasters have not prepped. So the greatest compliment that I can get from any of my guests is, wow, you've really prepped or how did you find that piece of information, right? That's the greatest compliment that I can get. From the listener, it's I learned something about my hometown broadcaster that I didn't know. Like when I, when I get those, that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give the fan of team XYZ more information about their broadcaster than they knew. And so if I can get both of those type of compliments, I've done my job. Um, I'm not concerned with how many people are listening to the podcast. I'm not concerned with, will this podcast go national? I'm not concerned with um, you know, revenue. I'm not concerned with any of that. I'm concerned with putting out a good product. And if I do that, then all the other stuff will take care of itself. You've had a lot of really good guests. Who has been your favorite? Uh, I would tell you that Mark Boyle of the Indiana Pacers was one of the most fascinating guests that I've ever had. What this guy does in the offseason is unbelievable. He is a guy that's not afraid to take some chances in life. And he was he was he was just fascinating. Um, he reminded me of the the writer George Plimpton. 
I don't know if you're familiar with George Plimpton, but George Plimpton wrote a book called Paper Lion. It's, it's, he's, he wrote a lot of books, but he was most famous for Paper Lion. Basically, what George Plimpton would do is he would insert himself into different sports and then write write about them. He would, you know, with Paper Lion, he he went to uh, uh, like practice with, with the with the Lions and um, and then wrote about it. it like did every like he got hit like an NFL player um, and and wrote about it. And he did this with other sports. Well, Mark Boyle is that guy uh, with different experiences in life. He walked across the state of Indianapolis. He fished in the Amazon for piranhas, which I didn't know you could fish for piranhas, but apparently you can. Um, He took a summer to broadcast in the Cape Cod League. Um, He did a bunch of things. He, uh, He acted in a play. He just did these things that were not were, were outside of his comfort zone. And it was fascinating to talk to him about that. Um, and I also discovered he and I are pretty much alike in terms of, uh, you know, you go to a you go to a bar and um, or you go to a whatever it is, a party or something like that. And you're very introverted. You know, it, people think broadcasters as a whole are extroverted people. But a lot of us are introverted, and we, we sort of talked about that uh, as well. Uh, Jerry Schemmel, fantastic interview. He was in a plane crash that uh, went down in I, – I was I always get confused if it was Sioux, Sioux Falls, South Dakota or Sioux City, Iowa. It was one of the two. Um, a commercial uh, commercial flight that had about 300 people on it plane crashed and a, a roughly half the people died and not only did he survive but he ran back into the plane and grabbed a baby and returned it to safety um just phenomenal i actually did an interview today with the university of miami broadcaster uh joe zagaki who was also in a plane crash, a much smaller one. He was in a Cessna plane um, where the two pilots died and he survived. And this was back in 92 when he was bringing – he lived in, in, in Florida at the time, somewhere in the Miami area. But he was flying um, you know, food and, and water and stuff like that to people whose homes were devasta- devastated by Hurricane Andrew. Well, the Cessna that he was flying in – about 30 seconds into the flight, barely could get off the ground or you know get up in the air, and it uh, hit off of the top of one roof of a, of a house and landed in the roof of another face down. And like I said, the two pilots died. He survived but had um, broken ribs, had collapsed lung. His ankle was turned completely the other way. He uh, His face was bashed in. And he was in the hospital for, I don't know, less than a week. And a week later, in his home, he, at the time he was the analyst for, uh, for Miami Hurricane football, the broadcaster for the hurricane said, hey, why don't we call Joe up on the phone and let him broadcast the opening kickoff? And they did that. Two weeks after that, or a week after that, I should say, he was back at the University of Miami broadcasting the game. So roughly three weeks after this horrific plane crash, 
he was back on the air. That is pretty darn crazy. Um, a couple questions that I ask just about everybody before we quit is one of the things is we've talked a lot about preparation for what you do. Just kind of walk us through your through your prep process for the broadcast. Not necessarily everything you do around the broadcast, but what you always have to have done to be ready to call a game. Yeah, so my goal is similar to the podcast, and I, I think is similar to uh, – what the best broadcasters out there do in baseball. You can't really do it in the other sports, but in baseball, you have more time. I want to find out the story. Okay. My goal in every broadcast is to tell one or two really good stories about a player, right? I, I want, I want more than just the numbers. And so I will scour newspapers, articles written, um, anything that I can get my hands on about players so that I can find that nugget or that story that will give the fan the moment to pause and really hone in on what's going on. Like the next time you or any of your listeners tune into a broadcast, concentrate on the times where you tune out of a broadcast, you know, where you go in and out. And a lot of times you'll find yourself really focusing when there's a story that, that has caught your ear. And so that's what I try to do is find those, those great stories. Now, look, I'll, I'll try to find trends and, and, and stats and things like that. But if you do nine innings, two and a half, three hours of that, people are going to be bored. And so my, my goal is to find that really good nugget and tell that story. And that's what I try to do. Do you find those, I know you mentioned through a lot of newspapers and stuff, what do you get from the batting cage? Um, I'll get so if I'll get additional information about uh, them as a person, right? Like I don't care, you know, unless I know a guy's hurting or whatever, you know, or or something doesn't look right, you know, I, I won't get too much on the day to day or how do you feel. Look, guys are going to be bumped and bruised during the course of a hundred game season, a 162 game season, whatever it is, right? You're going to play hurt. So unless something is, is really bothering someone, I won't get much in, in terms of that. You know, if a guy's slumping, you know, you're going to get most of the cliche answers from guys. I don't really care about that. What I'm trying to get from the batting cage is who that person is in general. Let's BS a little bit, right? Let's, Let's talk about, let's talk about you. Hey, is your family coming into town or, you know, Hey, what do you think about, you know, living in Minnesota, things like that, that, that I can add color to the broadcast. Now I don't care. I went out to a bar last night, whatever. I don't get involved in that. I don't, that's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is you know, I went fishing the other day and, you know, or I went to the mall of America the other day or, you know, whatever it is, I'm looking for things that humanize these ball players. That's what I'm looking for. What do you do to this day after being in minor league baseball for 17 years with the St. Paul Saints for 11 to still get better? Yeah, I listen to my broadcasts, okay? And I, I can't encourage young broadcasters, old broadcasters, uh, broadcasters in between to do that, right? So 
the next day when I'm doing my my notes and stats and things like that, I'll have my broadcast playing in the background. And what I do is I listen to it as a fan would. Because if you're a fan, you're doing other things, especially nowadays, right? Like our, our attention is not focused on one sole thing, okay? Unless it's the playoffs and then you're locked into whatever your favorite team is. But I'm listening to the game as a fan. So I want to know what does my ear pick up? What can I hear? What's standing out as I'm listening to the game as a fan? And then what don't I like? And then I'm thinking, what do I want to focus on for that one game? So every game I pick one one quality. I pick uh, one exercise, if you will, to focus on. Maybe it's, hey, make sure I say the score a little more today than I did yesterday. Or make sure it's to hammer this point home a little bit. Or maybe it's stay behind the action a half a second to a second. So I try to work on something in each game and really focus on that. It's like the golfer, right? I don't know if you play golf or if Poorly. any of your listeners. Yeah, exactly, right? We all do. But if you take golf lessons and then go out and play golf the next day, you're thinking about 10 different things that that instructor told you. And now you're worse off than you were when before you took the lesson. <laughs> but if you just focus on one thing that he talked to you about, right? You know, following through or keeping your hips back or whatever it is, right? Okay, now you can hyper-focus on that and try to get better at that. And I think as a broadcaster, that's what you need to do. Focus on one thing. Because if you're focusing on 10 things, your broadcast is going to be in a disaster. You're going to get in your own head. And so that's what I try to do. How could somebody reach out to you if they wanted to touch base? Uh, they can't. I'm too good for them. No, I'm just kidding. See, there's that ego <laughs> thing again. Um, a number of different ways. Seriously, I'll give out my email address. They can email me directly at the Saints. It's S. Aronson. So S is in Sean. Aronson, A-R-O-N-S-O-N, at saintsbaseball.com, S-A-I-N-T-S, baseball.com. Uh, they can reach out to me, social media. I'm not a huge social media guy, but... Uh, I've got the uh, Twitter account because I've got the podcast and, and it's just the, the podcast handle is at the voice BTV. So the voice BTV uh, boy, Tommy Victor uh, for for Twitter. They can reach out to me there, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk to anybody. I mean, if, if they want to talk on the phone, uh, they can reach out to me via email and we can exchange phone numbers and I'll be happy to to chat with them on the phone. Someone did it for me once um, and I believe in paying it forward. And that's that's what I try to do. What do you have coming up on the podcast? You said you have the Miami guy coming on. Give somebody a little preview. Yeah, so I've got about uh, six episodes, seven episodes in the can right now. Uh, this week is Dennis Bayak. Uh, I, I release all the podcasts every Tuesday. Uh, they come out Tuesday morning. So if you subscribe to The Voice Behind the Voice, you, you'll get it. Uh, if you subscribe iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but Dennis Bayak of the Winnipeg Jets is my guest this week. I have not decided on my guest for next week, but I'm leaning very heavily to Kevin Burkhart. Uh, Kevin Burkhart, obviously, of, of Fox Sports uh, NFL. Uh, you know, he, he's Major League Baseball. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Kevin Burkhart's name, first of all, you should be. He's the number two broadcaster on uh, the NFL on Fox behind Joe Buck. But if you watch the playoffs on Fox, he was the guy at the desk with Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz and um, you know, that whole crew, uh, he's the, he was the guy there. Um, he and I actually broadcast at the same time in the same league 
15 years ago when I was in Allentown and he was in New Jersey. And uh, I, I had not talked to him in 15 years, but he was here when the, uh, when the Vikings, uh, I'm trying to remember who they played uh, about two or three weeks ago, uh, when they played the Rams, uh, he was here in town. And, uh, and, and we met up and, and he was a guest and he was, he was fantastic. It, it was great. Um, you know, that's the other thing. Every one of my interviews th that I do, I get them when they come through uh, the Twin Cities or if I happen to be somewhere. Um, I do every one of them in person. It's the luxury I have being in the Twin Cities. We've got the four major sports. All these broadcasters have to come through town and that's when I get them. <laughs> Well, once again, we're visiting with Sean Aronson. He is the voice of the St. Paul Saints minor league baseball team. And Sean, I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time. Logan, it was uh, it was great. I, I love your podcast. I think you do a great job. Seriously, keep up the great work. And, uh, you know, hopefully our, our paths will cross in person uh, sometime in the near future. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.